This is my last sermon before sabbatical, so if I go too long, I'm banking on you forgiving me by the next time I preach in April. Um, In all seriousness, in just a moment, we're going to open the word to read this passage. And once you see what it says, you might be like, what did we just read? Uh, But has anybody else besides me come to appreciate those moments? I have, because here's what we found, that every passage of scripture in this book has turned it out to show itself to be good for us. It's good for us because it's God's word. It's breathed out by him. And as such, every pen stroke is just what he wanted to be there. Making all of it useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We're in the habit at this church of preaching straight through books of the Bible without skipping anything. In part because we would want to skip some of it. And those passages we might want to skip might be the ones we need most to conform our thinking to God's way of thinking, to shape our hearts, to align with his heart, to clear up some of the fog, obscuring the story he's written and the role that we've been called to play in that story. So while this is always the case, I want to make particular note of it today. Uh, Text your questions, 224-300-0240, and I'll respond either before the end of today's service or in writing this week. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. We usually start our sermons here at North Sub with some kind of intro that frames the central issue we'll be talking about today. I just want to start by reading this text right off the top. So turn with me, 1 Corinthians 11, I think it's page 1017 in the chairback Bibles. 1 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 2, and we'll read to verse 16. Follow along with me. Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since that is one and the same as having your head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Okay. (laughs) I love that I get a chance to open a text like this with you and dig into it together, to mine from it, the gold that God's got for us. Now, does that mean that as recently as Monday, I wasn't terrified of the thought of preaching this passage? 
my list of things that I didn't understand about this passage was about a mile long. But my self-talk was this. This is exactly what God wanted us to have. And as such, it's good. Amen? So here are three ways we're not going to approach this passage today. <clears throat> one is just get through it. <clears throat> like we might be tempted to kind of mail this one in. Like kind of mumble through it, make apologies for it. I could be the preacher who says, listen, I don't like this either, but I got to say it. We call this the DMV approach. Uh, most of us introverts, when we go to the DMV, kind of have a silent agreement that we all understand what this is. We're stuck in here together. Let's not annoy each other with conversation, right? And try to become best friends. Let's just wait it out. But this morning, I'm determined to approach this text like my mother-in-law approaches the DMV. Uh, she always comes back from that place with a new best friend. Her attitude is, if we're stuck here together, let's make the most of it. Like, I, let me get to know you. I bet you have a fascinating story. That's us today. Let's not just get through 1 Corinthians 11. Let's affectionately cozy on up to it. Uh, another approach we're not going to take this morning is, hey, scholars disagree, so who really knows what Paul means? Right? Like, even if, if even the smartest experts can't agree on what this means, what hope do we have of figuring it out? This is when I like to remind myself that uh, even Peter thought that some of Paul's writing was confusing, 2 Peter 3. Uh, but to Peter, that didn't mean it was pointless to study the scriptures. It meant it was worth working at to grow in knowledge. And so it's true. None of us will attain perfect understanding of the Bible. But by the Holy Spirit's illumination, we can grow in real, deep, genuine understanding of what texts like this mean. And so we do our best to weigh the interpretations, asking which best aligns with the text as far as we can tell. Uh, third and final approach we're not going to take today is, hey, none of us really takes this passage seriously. So why do we still insist on taking these other things in the Bible seriously, right? So here's how this, you often hear this one. Churches insist on sticking to the Bible's outdated teachings on sex and gender, for example, right? But I don't see any of them greeting each other with holy kisses anymore or wearing head coverings, like this passage says, or owning slaves. Why can't we just admit what's obvious? That scripture is a product of sinful human authors who can't be trusted to overcome their cultural blind spots. Here at Norsa, we affirm the consensus view of the last 2,000 years of church history that the Holy Spirit's inspiration of these sinful human authors was such that they were kept from error in their writing. Such that these aren't just human words, they are God's words. The alternative, of course, is that we're on our own. Remember when we studied Judges last summer? The repeated refrain in that account, where was it? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, right? Do you remember what we saw in Judges about what happens to a group of people when they do whatever is right in their own eyes over time? It's terrible, right? And who is it worse for? It's worse for women, the marginalized, the vulnerable. They're the ones who suffer most when a society does whatever is right in its own eyes. Right? So we're committed not to stand over Scripture determining if it seems right in our eyes, but rather to let Scripture stand over us, right? judging us such that we calibrate our ideas of what's right to what this book says. So with that groundwork laid, would you join me in just like leaning forward a little bit this morning? Bible's open in our laps, intent on searching this out to see what God wants us to hear in it. Okay, so think about whether you've ever had some version of this experience. I'll make it first person because some version of this has happened to me many times. I open a gift. So happy. This is what I most wanted. It even exceeds what I had hoped for. Until I watch you open your gift. And I see what you got. Now I want the gift that you got instead. Now I feel cheated because I received what 
certainly seems to be a lesser gift. Never mind that I was over the moon thrilled with my gift just 10 seconds ago. Right? That was before I saw yours. As soon as I saw yours, I craved that one and I lost all joy for mine. We get right to the point here that our scripture today is written from a baseline place of conviction that our genders are a gift. Right? My maleness, your femaleness, gifts, good gifts from God. But with gender, as with any other number of gifts from God, we're prone to lose our enthusiastic gratitude for the gifts given to us. I'm not proud to wear my new shoes anymore after a while. I may even start to wonder what would have been like to get a different gift. If I see somebody else got what I consider to be a better gift, I might start questioning whether the gift I received was even truly a gift worth celebrating at all. That's the situation in 1 Corinthians 11. Picture the backdrop for this chapter. We've got men and women worshiping side by side together. For the first time. Was that happening in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem? No, women were separated. Was it happening in Greco-Roman temples in Corinth? Nope, men and women kept separate. Both those settings. But now as the first generation of Christians 2,000 years ago have started gathering for worship, it's men and women together in the same room. And you know some members of the congregation had to have been like, this is amazing, are we really allowed to do this? But it's not only that they're occupying the same physical space. Men and women are actively ministering together. We read it a moment ago, right? A man offers up a prayer to God in, uh, in behalf of the congregation. A woman then offers up a prayer to God on behalf of the congregation. A man shares a word of encouragement, a prophecy uh, with the congregation from God. A woman shares a word of encouragement from God to the congregation. Both genders lifting up their voices and singing. Side by side, unbelievably countercultural and beautiful harmony of the genders not experienced in any other setting up to this point. Walking into a worship service in Corinth would have been the best picture any citizen of Corinth would have ever seen of unity across genders. It would have been thrilling. But then somehow, and we can't be sure of the thinking or the motivation or the specifics, but somehow some folks apparently have started to take it a bit further. Like, <clears throat> if in Christ there is no longer male or female like Paul says in Galatians 3, what use do we have for any gender distinction? Why do men and women need to dress differently? Why do we need to wear our hair differently? Let's dissolve those old-fashioned and unnecessary distinctions. And so what it seems like is maybe some of the men have started wearing their hair long or started pulling over their hoods in worship. Some of the women have started taking their traditional head coverings off despite the fact that head coverings were still very much the norm and expectation for married women in Corinth. Why not? Why are we still stuck on the old restrictions? But instead of Paul commending them for their forward thinking, like they might have expected, he points them down a different path, namely, joyfully living into the gendered identity we've been assigned by God, particularly in corporate worship. As such, today's text fits well with our emphasis during this series on healthy relationships, particularly, in this case, the relationships between men and women in the context of corporate worship, like what we're doing this morning. So, three sections to this text. <clears throat> the first being the longest. Paul first gives universalized reasons, like not just culture-specific, but universalized reasons to maintain gender distinctions in worship. Then he gives a reminder about the interdependence of the genders, then contextualize the context-specific reasons to maintain gender distinctions in worship. So let's... Have at it. Verses 2 through 10, universalized reasons to maintain gender distinctions in worship. These universalized ones are the ones that are hardest to dismiss. Some of you maybe have read scholars who say, uh, hey, Paul only says backwards things like this because uh, 
he didn't want to rock the boat in his misogynistic society. Right? He wouldn't advocate for gender distinctions, in other words, if he were in an egalitarian society like ours. But as we're about to see, Paul tells us exactly why he's commanding what he's commanding. And very little of it has anything to do with their present cultural situation. Instead, the reasons he gives in this first section are grounded outside of the particular Corinthian cultural moment. So here it is, verse 2. Uh, now I praise you because you remember me in everything. Hold fast to traditions just as I delivered them to you. In other words, great job. In Christ there is no longer male or female. You're nailing that, Corinthians. But, but I need to clarify that doesn't mean that all distinctions are erased such that we become a bunch of genderless humans worshiping together. Paul's a guy who believes Genesis 1 and 2, that God made us male and female, and the way each of us is meant to image him is as a male image bearer or as a female image bearer. And that relationship between male and female seems, in Paul's mind, to be related to this concept of headship. Take a look at verse 3. There's a play on words throughout this section with respect to the word head. It starts in verse 3. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. First off, it should be said, the head is the round thing that sits on the shoulders. The question scholars debate is, as a metaphor, what is head meant to depict? It's natural for us in the modern West to quickly answer, well, that's authority. We're familiar with heads of state, heads of operations, head coaches. The head has authority, gives orders that the others obey. But other scholars have pointed out, well, head can also mean source, like the head of a river, even in English, where it's where the water comes from and flows out of. The problem is that in the 3,800 uses of the word head in the literature, this Greek word, only three or four of them can possibly be construed as source. Right? Whenever head is used as source, the authors seem to use the plural, heads. And besides, like, you think about the parallel passage, if you're familiar with it, in Ephesians 5. Um, even if Paul's somehow claiming in that passage that the husband is the head over, or the source over the wife, whatever that would mean, doesn't it still necessarily carry some overtones of authority since he's using it as a basis for calling wives to submit to their husbands? So, that said, though, <clears throat> it's critical that we're very careful reading our cultural notions of heads of companies into Paul's use of the head metaphor. Remember, this culture that he's writing to is much less likely than we are in the modern West to ask, well, who gives the commands in this relationship? And much more likely than we are to ask a different question, namely, who gets the honor in this relationship? So while there is often authority involved when someone is head over another, that authority may be more of a function of the fact that the head, as many scholars have pointed out, is the prominent part. The head is what sticks out and gets the focus, for better or for worse. Historically, it's just been the case across cultures from the dawn of time, with few exceptions. Um, in most societies, men have ended up more prominent. After, uh, ever since Adam and Eve both sinned, but then God went specifically looking for the prominent part to call him to account. Remember what God said? Adam, where are you? That's more or less been how it works. Men get honored when things generally go well. Men get shamed when things don't go well. As a generality, they're the prominent part. Now, does that role difference in prominence have anything to do with inherent worth or value? It can't. Because Paul gives us here in verse 3, three pairings to help us understand headship. He says, Christ is the head of every man. In that pair, there is a difference in essence. Christ is infinitely more essentially valuable and worthy than every man. But God is the head of Christ, too. 
In that pair, there is no difference in essence. It would be heresy to say that there is. Despite the father's relative prominence, father and son are equal in essence, value, worth, of the same substance, essence. What that tells us is that for the middle pairing, that either man is head of the woman or husband is the head of the wife. You see different translations uh, can be legitimately translated either way. It has nothing to do with essence or value or worth. Men and women are equally valuable, equally worthy as image bearers of God. That's Galatians 3. This isn't a who's more important situation. Otherwise, we'd have to be prepared to say that God's more important than Christ. Instead, it's a which, what's each one's role situation. And listen, the relationship between God the Father and Christ the Son just does go one direction during Christ's time on earth. Before Christ came to earth, this is not the case now. Submission. To, for one to submit to another, you have to yield your will to another. But before the incarnation, the Father's will and the Son's will were one and the same divine will. Once God takes on flesh, though, in the person of Christ, now the God-man, Jesus Christ, is one person, two natures, each of those natures possessing its own will, his human will and his divine will, hence his ability to say those submissive words in the garden the night before he died, right? Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Respect, with respect to that human nature of Christ, and only with respect to his human nature, we see in the Gospels that the Father sends and the Son goes obediently. Christ never sends the Father. The Father commands, John 12. Christ obeys. Christ never commands the Father. The Father never obeys Christ. And the Son does the Father's will. The Father never does the Son's will. So while we would never suggest for one second that these role differences diminish the essential worth of the son or make him less than the father while he was on earth. Still, it's not a relationship of pure reciprocity. It just isn't. Right? Now, Tim, are you saying that husband is to wife as God the father is to God the son? No, that's taking it way too far, right? But Paul is drawing a limited parallel in verse 3 for one limited purpose, to illustrate that men and women aren't intended to relate in pure reciprocity without distinction. As God the Father is the prominent part with respect to Christ the Son and his humanity, there's a prominent part in the relationship between husband and wife, and the flow is meant generally to move in one direction. And to Paul, that theological truth has implications for what the Corinthians do with their physical heads in the context of corporate worship. So, I'm giving you a lot here. Here are the cultural norms at the time. Okay? Men didn't cover their heads in Corinth. That is, except for the rich and powerful men who were chosen to serve as priests in the pagan temples, and they'd pull their togas up over their heads in that role as a proud display of their status. On the other hand, married women did cover their heads in public in Corinth to show, hey, I'm married, as they do in many cultures around the world today. So catch what Paul's saying here in verse 4. <clears throat> He's saying, if you're a man and you get up to pray or prophesy at church on Sunday with your head covering on like you're some self-important Corinthian pagan priest, you're dishonoring your head. Remember who your head is, men? It's Christ. Right? So instead of Christ getting the glory from your prayer or from your prophecy for the congregation, you, man, are stealing the glory for yourself by drawing attention with your showy head covering. In the converse, thank you. Verse 5, if you're a woman in Corinth and you get up to pray or prophesy at church on Sunday with your head covering off, like you're free from having to identify as a married woman anymore and you're just your own woman distancing yourself from the man you live with, then you're dishonoring your head. And who's your head? 
It's your husband, right? Back in verse 3. Instead of the congregation, in other words, focusing on Christ in worship, all eyes are on your husband because they're wondering how ashamed he must feel that you've disassociated with him by removing your head covering. Paul says, if you're going to do that, you might as well go ahead and have your head shaved. Which is only what the temple prostitutes would do. In other words, it's that vein of shameful to act like you're independent now from your husband in the act of corporate worship. Verse 6, if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. If it is disgraceful, which it is, then let her head be covered. Now, at this point, we're like, bro, Paul, we might need you to back up and help us understand some things here. Like, I'm not even sure I I get what you meant way back in verse 3 when you said Christ is the head of man, but man is the head of woman. Like, what is up with that? Paul's going to help us out here. Uh, he's, He's not talking this way to try to be accepted by a patriarchal culture. His reasoning actually goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, creation. So follow his argument here, verse 7, moving forward. He says, a man should not cover his head because he's the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. This is getting weirder. Is woman not the image of God? No, she is. I mean, of course she is, just like man is. Genesis 1, Paul affirms that wholeheartedly. But he's making a point based on the original purpose of the creation of each human in Genesis 1 and 2. He sees those chapters not just as accidental descriptions of how God happened to arbitrarily make humans, but rather as though those accounts in Genesis 1 and 2 tell us something foundational about the relationship between men and women, and particularly husbands and wives. So check it out. It has to do with who women were created for or from and who women were created for. So verses 8 and 9. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for woman or for the sake of woman, but woman for man or for the sake of man. Who was first woman created from? The man. Adam was Eve's source, pulled from Adam's side. Her existence then brought glory to him in the sense that he had served as the raw material for this amazing creation. Right? On the walls at Starbucks, the signs say, you love our coffee? It's because our coffee beans are so great. There's some of that going on here. You think this woman's awesome? That's indirectly a compliment to what she's made from. But who was this first woman created for? Again, the man. And Paul thinks that matters. God said about Eve that he had made a helper for Adam in Genesis, right? Not Adam as a helper for Eve. And of course, theologians have accurately and importantly pointed out that that word helper is not a term of inferiority. It's most often used in Scripture for God as helper of Israel. But it matters for Israel's self-conception that Israel is never called God's helper. It's always the other way around. And Paul thinks it ought to matter for the self-conception of every man and woman that woman was created for man, to help man, not the other way around. Now, of course, that point can be overwrought. Too much can be made of it. Here are three ways I've seen this teaching misused, okay? I've seen this teaching misused uh, when we treat gender roles as inflexible rules instead of as eager postures. Like if our elders were never willing to help the women's leadership team with something they're working on because, no, women are supposed to be our helpers. That would be just as ridiculous as the husband who won't ever help his wife with dinner because she's supposed to do the helping. I'm supposed to call the shots. That's deranged, right? These aren't inflexible rules. These are eager postures, some have called it, flexible postures regarding the roles that we're eager to play. Even if sometimes it makes sense for us not to insist on helping or not to insist on leading. 
posture is different than an inflexible action. Second, sometimes folks treat headship as authority to give orders. This idea of headship is grounded more in our Western corporate norms than in anything biblical. Back to verse 3 of our text, remember we see God is the head of Christ. When do we ever see God barking orders at Christ the Son? No, the leader who has to pull rank has almost always failed miserably as a leader. And third and finally, making no room for exceptional expressions within the given parameters. If our theology has no room for a Deborah or a Phoebe or a Priscilla or a Miriam, then our theology of gender isn't biblical. In recent decades, some segments of evangelicalism have so precisely and narrowly described what biblical manhood and womanhood is that it's no surprise that a generation of boys are growing up saying, well, I don't enjoy raw meat or find ultimate fighting entertaining. But that's what my church told me manhood was, so I must not be a man. Or on the flip side, I don't particularly like pink or Barbie dolls, but that's what my church told me femininity was, so I must not be a woman. And guess what? Our world is happy to offer an alternative. Oh, you don't have to live in the gender that you were assigned at birth, right? Maybe that's not authentically who you are inside. We created some of that problem. Far more biblical than that narrowly prescriptive approach is the recognition that within guardrails, there's a wide range of valid and appropriate expressions of biblical manhood and womanhood. My wife Sarah is running a conference this weekend right now for 300 ministry leaders, talking to them about prioritizing their walk with the Lord in ministry, and that's exactly where she should be. Her strong leadership exercised appropriately doesn't put her in violation of any of this. So listen, I'm, I'm as eager as anyone to correct abuses like these and others. <clears throat> Those of us who affirm the goodness of gender distinction should be the loudest voices rebuking misuses like these. But <clears throat> if our theology of manhood and womanhood is not shaped in any way by the fact that woman was created from man and for man, if we can't answer the question, how does the fact that man was created as, or woman was created as man's helper shape your life in Christ and your understanding of gender roles? That's an issue, right? Because scripture here and elsewhere unequivocally states that it's supposed to still matter for us. The best analogy I've heard on this, capturing how a woman can exist for a man's glory, like Paul says in verse 7, yet not be less than him, is this one from Andrew Wilson. It says, I have an apple tree in my garden which produces apples, from which we make apple crumble. The crumble is the glory of the apple. It reflects its goodness in, in every way and brings honor to the apple. And the apple is the glory of the tree. And none of the three are superior or inferior to the other two. Men and women bear God's image together and reflect God's glory on earth in different and complementary ways. Now, throughout this, I've been bouncing between man and woman, husband and wife, put any two translations side by side, and they're going to translate these pairs differently. So which is it? Is this talking about men and women or husbands and wives? It's a tough call because the words for husband and wife in Greek are just the words man and woman. So once or twice in this passage, Paul almost certainly must mean specifically husband and wife. Look at what he says here. He says, Christ is the head of every man. But then he doesn't say it like that in the next pairing, right? He says, the man is the head of singular woman. So uh, in that case, you know, may just be husband and wife. Women are not generally called to submit to every man in the church. Every man is emphatically not an authority over every woman. But a couple other times in this passage, it can't mean husband and wife. Look at verse 8. Man did not come from woman. woman in what sense did a wife come from a husband? 
So that's why I'm hesitant when the words are just man and woman to get on board with the translations that immediately narrow this down to, well, he's just talking about husbands and wives. Because if the church is, in fact, a household of faith, there might be ways in which this headship plays out in the church context as a macrocosm of that home setting, which is maybe why Paul intentionally leaves this language ambiguous. Now, we still got two sections to go. I promise I'm going to cover those way more briefly than this first and longest section. But before we do, we got to talk about one more universalized reason Paul gives to maintain gender distinctions in worship. It's this one, verse 10. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So the head covering, it's a symbol of authority, meaning it says to those who see it, hey, she's got the authority to pray or prophesy in church because, look, she's not doing so as someone who has thrown off her authority. Why the woman wearing the authority marker and not the man? Well, Paul says, well, besides the fact that it's fitting for her to give glory to her husband, despite the fact that he's a fellow human, because she is his glory, verse 7, and therefore by bringing glory to her husband, she is bringing glory to Christ. It's also because the angels. Why is, what is this curveball? Uh, this is one of four times the New Testament uses the fact that angels are watching us as a motivation to act a certain way. Angels in scripture seem like they are present with us in worship and are very zealous for God's glory, even carrying out judgment on worshipers who refuse to glorify God in proper ways. You can see Acts 12. So for men and women to be throwing off gender distinctions and holding worship services in a way that distracts from the glory that belongs to Christ by worshiping improperly, angels apparently are going to be upset by that and they may intervene. Okay, a few. So, how do you think this has been received so far by the church at Corinth? It's hard to say. You know, there's been a lot of conjecture about, well, they've been just as confused about this as we are, or surprised by it. But you can picture one aspect of it, right? Because men have always been men. You can picture the guy leaning against the wall at the church service in Corinth. This letter just arrived from Paul. Our guy's been listening as it's been read aloud. And during this last section, he's been standing up a little bit taller, right? chest puffed out. That's right, Paul. This is a man's world and a man's church. To that guy, Paul is like, no, 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 no. Don't get it twisted, right? In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. In other words, sure, Eve came from Adam, and that matters. But it also matters that none of you men would be here if it wasn't for a woman who literally carried you inside her and gave you life. So let's drop the pretense of superiority. We all need each other. This isn't a battle of the sexes. This isn't boss babes or based bros. We depend on each other. And by the way, all things come from God. You came from God. I came from God. Our genders came from God. And our gender roles came from God. I want so badly for us to always be this kind of church. We're going to do it in a way that maintains the distinction Scripture calls us to maintain. But let's remember what's happening at a church service in Corinth that Paul does not at all attempt to temper down or put a stop to. You've got men and women ministering together to the congregation. We read it on the screen earlier in the service. I don't know if you caught it during uh, one of the songs. We put Joel 2 up on the screen. Joel 2 is an Old Testament prophecy that this would happen, that men and women would prophesy. And it's finally here. Men benefiting from hearing the prayers of women. Women benefiting from hearing the prayers of men. Women standing up to share a challenging word for the congregation, as women often do here at Norsev. And men sitting there being convicted or encouraged by it. That's happening in Corinth. And Paul doesn't say, 
Every woman who prays or prophesies should stop doing so. He says, hey, keep it up. Just don't do away with all your markers of masculinity and femininity while you do it. Those markers were good, and God wants you to keep those. Congregational life here at North Sub will be richest when men and women are bringing their gifts to bear, not as genderless blobs of humanity, but rather as men and as women. Janelle, you're our worship leader this week. Lead our worship like a woman of God, like you have been. Ed Marr is our elder chair right now. Ed, lead our church like a man of God. Right? Together in our maleness and femaleness will we honor God in worship. Now, Paul has already demonstrated elsewhere in this letter in past weeks that he's perfectly willing to make one point using five different arguments, to come at a topic from a bunch of different directions in hopes that at least one of his arguments will be persuasive to his hearers. Same on this topic of gender relations in worship. He's already given us the creation reason and the glory reason and the angel reason why men should dress like men and women should dress like women. Now on top of that, he's ready to close it out with some societal reasons specific to their culture. That's how we wrap up. Uh, verses 13 to 16 says, judge for yourselves. That's an invitation to consider what seems right to them in their context. So, verses 13 to 15. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. In other words, Paul's saying, look around at how it just tends to work, even outside the church. Women generally have longer hair. Men generally have shorter hair. Which one do you think should wear the covering, he says, right? Shouldn't it be the one who God already pointed to by giving her a covering? And if we would say, well, actually, there's this tribe in the South Pacific where the norm is for men's hair to be long and women's hair to be shaved, I don't know that Paul would be bothered by that, right? He's making a point like, hey, there's a general way in which this tends to work out. Christians aren't supposed to be the people who make some kind of statement by disregarding these norms of what we were assigned but this permission here to consider culturally specific outworkings of this principle can't mean, hey, well, this is culturally limited, so we can disregard it. Because look at verse 16. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Paul makes it clear this is explicitly not just a Corinth thing. This call to gender distinctions isn't just because there's some temporary situation going on in Corinth that needs to be dealt with, but as soon as the circumstances are different, Paul let the men and women in Corinth be undifferentiated like all the rest of the churches are. No, no. Though Paul's not interested in giving a universal prescription for how many inches long your hair must be. Thank God, because I need a haircut. The core principle of differentiation is essential everywhere. Um... For Paul, maintaining appropriate distinction between men and women in worship is a universal must that's being practiced, apparently, in every one of the churches. It's not a virtue to try to be the odd church that breaks the mold. Every church ought to be the kind of church that humbly looks to the near-universal practice of churches that went before us for the last 2,000 years and takes that to heart. So, hey, even, <clears throat> even though head coverings and hair length might not communicate the same thing today that they did back then, it's critical for us to look to other ways to apply this today. And Paul says, does not nat even nature itself teach you? What are those things in our cultural setting that nature itself teaches us, right? The ways that in our culture it looks like to be a man or a woman. So for some Christian women, this passage factors into whether to take their husband's last name. 
whether to wear wedding, wedding rings. Some men still don't wear hats in church because of this passage. Some women do make sure they look undistractingly feminine when they show up for worship. In Bulgaria, I believe, this, uh, this means yes and this means no. Is that right? I read that. Uh, so you need to switch up your symbols when you move over to that context or else you're communicating the opposite of what you want to communicate, right? It's the same with scripture, right? Paul says many times, greet one another with a holy kiss, right? But in our culture, if I were to give Carson a big kiss on the lips when we show up for church on Sunday morning, he might be confused by that, right? A big warm handshake and embrace is a better way of obeying the holy kiss principle, the principle behind the holy kiss command. So in the same way, we do well with this 1 Corinthians 11 head covering situation to look for ways to apply the base principle in ways that make sense in our context and communicate in our context what's meant to be communicated. And that base principle, I think, is something like this. This is our big idea for today. In order to bring glory and not disgrace to God in our worship services, men and women should minister in such a way that does not dissolve gender distinctions. I think that's the big idea for us to take away. In order for us to bring glory and not disgrace to God in our worship services, men and women should minister in such a way, including dress in such a way, that does not dissolve gender distinctions. Differentiated instructions, differing roles for men and women, God would never, someone says. I guess my question is, which God? <clears throat> the one who established an all-male priesthood in Israel? You say, no, no, the God made known to us in Jesus. To which I guess I'd respond, well, which Jesus? The one who was willing to overthrow cultural norm after cultural norm, but who still picked 12 disciples who were all male? Is that the Jesus who would never make any distinction between men and women? If Christianity's teachings about men and women are a barrier to us or a hindrance to us because they seem so backward, so outdated, so oppressive, here's a question we need to consider. Where exactly did we get the idea that men and women are equals with equal rights? Did you know that that very idea came from Christianity? Read the best-selling Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari's atheist. But he points out there that the idea of gender equality was laughably absurd everywhere in the world before Christianity burst on the scene and even makes the case it kind of should be absurd still today. Go to a place untouched by Christianity today, you're not going to find people championing gender equality. Right? That's, a Christ, that's a Christian thing. It's only found in places still haunted by a Christian past. And those who critique Christianity, sometimes legitimately, for its mistreatment of women, do so on ground that can't stand, if not undergirded, by biblical Christian morality. But like anything else, our sinful human tendency is to take a good gift, like biblical teaching on the fundamental equality of the sexes, and to make it out to be the only thing that God says about the sexes, extrapolating that principle in ways that do violence to the vision of male-female relations that's actually laid out in Scripture. Let's not do that. Let's let the whole counsel of God shape our thinking on gender roles in worship. Not just our thinking, but our heart reflexes too. Our gut reactions. Lord, change us in that way. Instead of wishing for the gift that somebody else has been given, let's joyfully celebrate the gift that we've been given. We've each been given as humans whose genders have been assigned by God, along with all the associated responsibilities of that gender. And let's live as an interdependent church, males and females working together as God intended.